Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. All right, please turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, page number 974. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. Just a moment. Oh, and by the way, uh, you need to definitely have this Bible open today before I forget to say that. Uh, Keep it open, so whatever you're using, your phone, your app, Bible in the seat in front of you, you want to have that available for you for the entire message because you're going to have a project to do later on. In a moment, I'm going to read scripture, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask that one of you comes up here and preaches for me. Okay. Not as funny as the first service. Anyway, we're going to read Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 15, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please now look at verse 1. Paul writes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, excuse me, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves." For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Jesus, we do come now and we ask your blessing on this time. I am reminded uh, of your words to the disciples in John 15 that you are the vine. We are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing, and that is true of all areas of life. It is definitely true of preaching. There is nothing I have this morning that is of any value, but your word is valuable, and you take it and use it in ways we would never think or imagine, and so I pray that you will do that this morning. Apply it to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last several weeks now, we have covered a whole lot of material here in this particular section we've been in, verses 1 through 15. And I was about to move forward today into verses 16 and following when it occurred to me that I never covered verse 15. Somehow along the way here, I had kind of left that out of the last two messages. And so I was like, man, I can't can't leave that. Because while you may be tempted to look at verse 15 and think, well, that's really simple. We don't need to spend a lot of time or a whole message on that verse alone. Actually, you'd be wrong because that verse 
ties everything that we've been seeing here in verses uh, 1 through 12, 1 through 15 together. And it also sets the stage for us to help us really appreciate what Paul is going to say starting in verse 16. Now, you already know the situation in Galatia. There are these false teachers, and now we know them to be true legalists in the biblical sense of the word. They are there teaching that in order to be saved and in order to be made right with God, you have to follow and obey the Old Testament law. And obviously, some portion of the church there in Galatia either has bought into this way of thinking or they are considering buying into this way of thinking. And Paul's letter here is designed to fight against that and to try to keep them from embracing this false gospel. He wants them to stay true to the gospel of grace, the gospel of faith in Christ alone. And so because that has been his focus, pretty much all along the way here, we've forgotten the fact that there's actually a a whole nother part of this church that we really haven't even talked about yet. And this would be the group that is not being drawn away by this false gospel. Now, before I continue, let me say that I don't know if that is 100% correct. I assume it is, but I don't know that it is. It's a hypothesis, though, based on how these kinds of situations normally go. I mean, if you were just going to be a like an odds maker in Vegas, and you had the question before you, what is the likelihood that every single person in this church is going to be fooled by these false teachers? My assumption is, is that the odds of that are really, really low, pretty much zero. There's no possible way that every single person in that church is considering abandoning the true gospel of Jesus Christ and going over to this false gospel. These, these false teachers may be good, but they just can't be that good. There had to be some people who were questioning it. There had to be some people who were fighting against that within their own context there, and one or more of those people likely contacted Paul, told him what was going on, and that's why he's writing here. He's writing because he's heard. He's writing because no doubt there was somebody who was concerned about the situation and reached out to him, and now he is responding, trying to help those who have not gone that path to, to, to not go that way, and then to help those who are considering it to maybe pull back. Now, hold that thought for a moment and think about this. I don't know, um, I don't know how many of you have been in churches in the past where there has been turmoil, a season of turmoil of some sort. And I'm referring specifically here to a situation where there was fighting within the church. Um, I've seen too many of those. Jamie, before we got married, she and her family went through that at the church they attended in Chicago. Uh, the pastor, the guy who had been the lead pastor there for a number of years, was forced to resign under, let's just say, less than ideal circumstances. And an assistant pastor had stepped in and had sort of taken over the preaching and the general leadership of the church. Now, the, the leadership of the church it was a deacon-led church, so the deacons were not necessarily in favor of the idea of him becoming the new lead pastor. So they changed his title to an interim pastor. You know what an interim pastor is? It's someone who's like filling a spot for a little bit for a period while they're waiting for the new head guy to show up or whatever the case may be. So they changed his title to this and, you know, everybody knew they were looking. Well, this guy really wanted the job. And so what did he do? He went out and started recruiting within the church, started getting a, a, like a team, a group of people on his side, and he began to attempt to manipulate and influence the people who were uh, looking to call the next pastor and try to force them into choosing him to be that person. And unfortunately, most of the, well, fortunately, probably in that scenario, uh, most of the people who were on that committee didn't want him. 
And so guess what happens? Long story short, a civil war breaks out within the church. He's got his group of people. They're trying to get him installed into the, that position. There's this other group that doesn't want that. And what happens normally, it seems like in those scenarios, is when you have discontent within the church, other forms of discontent begin to pop up. So all of a sudden now, you know, a third group appears. They want this guy over here that nobody's ever heard of. And this group over here just wants this thing to change because they don't like how the church has been for the last 20 years or whatever the case may be. And it just went downhill fast. And what had been a thriving, um, influential church, not just in the region, but really nationally in their movement, was basically destroyed in the period of about two years. Jamie's dad was a deacon at the time. He was a part of that overall process. And I've heard him tell, tell stories of just how mean-spirited and, and just ruthless people could be. People within the church that they had known for years before that would have never imagined that they would turn on them like that. And yet, that's exactly what happened. Um, Cornerstone has not been untouched by this issue. Now, it wasn't as bad as the situation that happened in Jamie's church, but we've had a little bit of that as well over the, in, in the past, back in 2006, when Jamie and I were in Chicago, and you have to be an old-timer here to remember this, but uh, a, a man who was in leadership here at the church became dissatisfied with the theology and direction of the church and attempted to draw people away to himself. And in the process of doing that, uh, you know, he was successful to a point. He, he pulled some people to himself, kind of rallied them to his cause. cause. Uh, pastor Tim, who was our pastor at the time, Unfortunately, was kind of forced to do the same on the other side, like trying to hold the church together around what was biblical truth at that point. Uh, and same as with Jamie's church, you know, as this is all happening and discontent's popping up within the church, then other groups are popping up who are discontent. You know, now there's a group over here that hasn't liked how we've done this thing, like music, for example, and like we need to go back to how we used to do it five years ago. And then there's another group that says, no, we need to get further away from that. And it just discontent breeds discontent. And in the long run uh, of, you know, that situation played itself out to the end, and this is just my own personal observation and opinion, others might disagree. Funny enough, I would say that it was all the secondary issues of discontent that ended up removing more people from the church than the main issue that started the whole thing. In the end, it wasn't the theology issue that that guy brought up to start it. It became all this other stuff. And that hurt the church and was a very difficult season for us. So if I take those two examples and far too many others like them that I have heard from other people over the years, and I apply what seems to be a common experience within the Christian church, and it's unfortunate that I have to say it that way, but that's exactly what it is. It's a far too common experience within the Christian church. I apply it to the Galatians. It would not surprise me in the least to find out that this church was beginning to turn on itself. Through the midst of all that's going on here, right? These false teachers and the battle over the gospel, which is a real and genuine battle, I mean, one that needed to be fought. In the midst of that, it would not surprise me to learn that the fighting had spread out from that original issue into who knows what kinds of other issues or beliefs or practices within the church because discontent tends to breed discontent. Now, can I prove that that happened here in Galatia? Well, I can, approve, uh, I can prove it generally speaking. 
There's some details here that we're going to walk through in a few moments that will help you see this in kind of a, a larger contextual way. But there's also some of this that it's me kind of extrapolating out of what I see, trying to make sense of clues where we don't have the full story. And so I'm going to try to be careful as we walk through this this morning to help you understand when I'm reading between the lines, hopefully not without reason or cause, but when I can't say this is 100% true and the times when I can say, hey, this is 100% true in Scripture, I'll show it to you. Let's see if we can do that together. Let's start, though, by rereading verses 13 to 15. Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And let's just pause and remind ourselves of the situation, right? One of Paul's main arguments here against these false teachers is that, hey, listen, you should not go back to the Old Testament law because the Old Testament law is done. It's expired. It's over. There's no reason to turn back to that. We are now free in Jesus. And while that freedom applies to many areas, let's be specific for the moment, it applies specifically to the law. We're free from the law. However, as you see in verse 13, a potentially negative outworking of that truth is that some people might use their newfound freedom as an opportunity to indulge in the flesh and their sinful nature. So like, hey, isn't this great? There's no more law. Since there's no more law, I, no, nothing's telling me I can't go out and enjoy sexual immorality, so let's hit the town. Hey, there, hey, there's no law now saying that we can't get drunk, so let's go to every bar we find. There's people, that kind of thinking, there's people who apparently are, are being tempted that direction, going that way, and Paul says, no, don't do that. Your freedom is not meant to open the door for sin. Your freedom is not meant to give you the ability to indulge your flesh with impunity. Rather, through love, serve one another because the whole law is fulfilled in that one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving one another is supposed to prevent us from those kinds of things. If I am really trying to love others as myself, I'm not going to go out and sin in this way or sin in that way because it's going to hurt my family. It's going to hurt my friends, my church, my whoever, right? I don't want to do that. Hurt the other person. I don't want to do that, so don't use the, your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And then he ends with this cryptic statement. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, why would he say this? You know, what, what exactly does he mean here? Well, let, let, let's start with what is clear. Clearly, Paul is concerned with the very kind of factionalism and infighting that I described a few moments ago. Here in verse 15, he uses two very interesting words, an animalistic word and an apocalyptic word. He talks first about biting, okay, like a dog, like how one animal bites another animal when they're fighting. It's biting to injure. Okay, he, he applies that to these people and whatever situation is going on. So there's a sense in which they're almost acting like animals biting one another. And then he uses a really interesting word here, the word devour. It means to consume completely, to utterly destroy. This is the same word that John, for example, is going to use in Revelation chapter 11, verse 5, to describe what happens to the uh, people who attack the two witnesses who are out there prophesying. He says in verse 5 that fire pours out of their mouth and consumes, that's the word devour, same word, it consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. So devour here means to annihilate, to absolutely and utterly destroy. 
And the way he words this here in the text, it sounds to me as if it's already happening because the real focus of verse 15 seems to be on warning them about the outcomes of their actions. Hey, look, if you keep on this path, you keep biting and devouring one another, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be consumed by one another. In other words, you're going to implode. You're going to self-destruct. You're going to commit ecclesiastical suicide. Your church is going to kill itself if you stay down this path. Now, is there any other evidence in Galatians that would prove that this, there really is the same kind of factionalism and infighting that seems to be uh, hinted at here in the text? And I'd say yes, and I won't put this on the screen. This is where I want you to look at your text with me for a moment. Look back, for example, at chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, so just a few verses back. Notice there that Paul lists two main groups of people uh, from that main theological issue that's dividing the church, on the one hand, you have those who would be justified by the law, verse 4. On the other hand, you have those who eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, verse 5. He seems to refer to those same two groups again in verse 6 when he talks about neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counting for anything. You can almost read those as like team names, like if they're going to play softball, one's going to be team circumcision, one will be team uncircumcision, and that would be a weird game to watch. Uh, look at verses 8, 10, and 12. You can clearly see that the circumcision group has leaders or spokesmen, okay, people who are sort of like the champions of that cause, sort of rallying the troops together. Of course, Paul here in this letter is acting as the spokesman or leader for the other group. And the overall focus of verses 1 through 12, when you read them as a whole and kind of understand what's going on there, it's Paul speaking to, well, everyone, but maybe particularly to those who are still on the fence saying, you need to make a decision. You need to decide which team you're going to be on. Is it going to be team law or is it going to be team freedom? Which way are you going to go? I hope it's team freedom. It better be team freedom, right? That seems to be his kind of, he's trying to call them back to that specific end. So clearly, clearly there is factionalism and fighting at that level between these two main groups. But as I look again now at verse 13, it strikes me that within the freedom group, team freedom, Paul's group, there's likely a whole nother set of problems happening here, just within that one team, perhaps related to what you are free to do. See, this group has been fighting for freedom, freedom from the law, freedom in Christ. And as I've already pointed out, I could see how some people might take that too far, right? Take their freedom too far, use it as an excuse to indulge the flesh, which might then cause little subgroups to form people on one side who say, well, it's okay for us to do this. And people on the other side who say, no, it's not. You say, well, Stacey, is there any evidence of that? Yes. But now it becomes a little less clear and a little more extrapolated. For example, look ahead now to the section we're about to begin next week. Okay. This is a very well-known passage. Um, I'm both looking forward to and dreading preaching through it. We'll get to that eventually though. The issue here is walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh. And obviously, we're going to come back and talk about this section in a lot more detail in the next few weeks. But I just want you to take a moment right now to quickly read through verses 19 through 23. I want you to notice specifically the, the detailed list of works of the flesh and the detailed list of fruits of the spirit. Do that now when you're done. Look up at me. Go.
All right? It's not that long, so it shouldn't take you this long. Read faster, people. Come on. I'm kidding. All right. You feel studied up? Because you got a pop quiz now. Here we go. Three questions. See how you do. We'll start with the easy one. Number one, does Paul in this passage list every possible work of the flesh that he could have listed uh, for the Galatians to consider? Every possible sin, every possible violation of God's righteousness, yes or no? All right, very good. He does not. Okay, you got the first one right. So, so instantly I would assume, you know, there's some purpose for why he hasn't listed them all, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Number two, this is a little harder. Does Paul list every possible fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23? Now, hmm, that's a little tougher, isn't it? Because, I mean, how exactly would I go about answering that question necessarily? However, it just, you know, I, I don't think he does. I won't ask you if you think he did or not, because there's some things there I would assume maybe the Spirit might work in my life, like, you know, mercy is a good example. Mercy's not mentioned in the list. Does the Spirit work mercy in me? Or faith? Faithfulness is mentioned, but not faith in and of itself. So does the Spirit not do that? So, so to me, I think there's probably more things the Spirit does in our lives than what these we see here in these nine characteristics listed. Uh, I don't think Paul is trying to be exhaustive with this list. I don't think that's his purpose at all here. Now the third and most important question. If he is not listing every possible work of the flesh, and if he is not listing every possible fruit of the Spirit, then why did he choose the ones he actually included here in the list? <clears throat> now, as I think about that question, I think, well, there can only be two possible answers to this. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm a simple person, so two possible answers, I can get my mind around that. Possibility number one is that he's just being totally random with these lists. In other words, he's sitting down to write, and he wants to talk about the issue of works of the flesh versus fruit of the spirit. And so as he begins, he's like, you know, don't, don't do the works of the flesh. What's the work? Okay. Uh, sexual immorality, yeah, uh, this, you know, he just starts listing out stuff. Okay, just whatever popped in his mind, obviously guided by the Holy Spirit. Whatever popped in his mind as he's going, that's what he wrote down. No rhyme or reason, totally random. Same then with the fruits of the spirit as he got ready to write that. He's just being totally random. What, are the, what does the Spirit do in our lives? The Spirit produces love and joy and peace. Okay, yeah, those are good. He just makes a list. Okay, easy, easy squeezy, right? So one option is that it's totally random, and that is very possible. I'm not saying it's not. It is very possible. Second, though, there could be a very specific reason as to why he included the items that he included in both of those lists, and that is that they are somehow specific to the Galatian situation. In other words, these works of the flesh that you see in verses 19 through 21 could be the very things that some people within the Galatian church are, are struggling with. I mean, just notice, for example, back to your list, 19 to 21, notice how many different ways he addresses factionalism and fighting. He talks about enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, eight different terms, all basically referring to the same thing. I mean, it's different pieces of it, different expressions of it, but I don't know. I don't think that's random. Like, I, maybe I'm wrong. It just doesn't seem like you would say eight different ways of the same problem if that problem wasn't on your mind. I could be wrong. Notice also the specific sins he addresses, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, drunkenness, and orgies. That is a really weird list, is it not? 
I mean, if you're sitting down just to write a random list of sins, are those the ones you would have come up with? So, so it just makes me scratch my head and go, okay, something tells me this list isn't random. I know there's factionalism and fighting at the main level, right? True gospel versus false gospel, team freedom versus team law. But I think there is also a very good possibility, maybe even probability, that there's fighting going on within the, the team freedom camp between people who are using that freedom to say, hey, I'm totally free to go out and commit sexual immorality. Totally free. Law's done. I'm going to have at it. And Paul's like, uh, no. <laughs> no, you're not free to do that. That thing that you're wanting to do and blame on freedom, that's a work of the flesh. Stop it. Like, I, I, it's possible that that's his heart here. Now, can I prove that? Nope, I sure can't. It is an extrapolation based on the context. As I'm trying to take all these pieces and the clues that seem to be how Paul has arranged them here, I'm kind of work them together. But I do not think that is a crazy or far-fetched hypothesis given the larger context. And just to finish out the thought then, if his works of the flesh list isn't random, then my assumption is, is that his fruit of the spirit list isn't either. Again, if you go back to that list now and read it kind of with these, this little hypothesis in mind, love, joy, peace, patience, meekness, kindness, it would make sense if he's saying, hey, look, these are, these are the things that address or sort of counteract the problem, the stuff that's going on in the Galatian church. To me, that makes a lot of sense. Now, regardless of whether I'm right about that or not, as you look at verse 15 here one more time, it is definitely clear that something's going on. Something's going on. There's a problem with people attacking one another. And as I think about that, you say, well, could it just be that he's referring to the attack you know, between the, or the fight between the false teachers and the true believers here? No, I, the more I think about it, I don't think the verse 15 can apply to that level. Because if that's the case, then Paul's probably violating his own <laughs> comment here. I mean, my goodness. Let's think back to the very beginning of the letter. What was his opening salvo at the very beginning of this letter against the false teachers? Chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. He says, let anyone who teaches another gospel than the one I proclaim to you be accursed. Do you remember what the word accursed meant? It meant let them be damned to hell forever. I'm no Greek expert, all right? But I'm pretty sure that accursed in that context, the way he uses it there, is basically the equivalent of being devoured, utterly destroyed in a judgment sense by God because you preach a different gospel. It's a big deal. If I think about the, the biting aspect of what Paul says here, has he not been biting throughout the letter, attacking them at every turn, sometimes in really like amazingly like in-your-face kind of ways, he has not cut, like, pulled any punches with them. He has gone after them tooth and nail because when the gospel, the gospel itself is in danger, I don't, I don't think there's anywhere too far to go. You're talking about eternal heaven or eternal hell if you don't fight for this. We're told to contend for the faith once for all. So I don't think verse 15 is referring to that bigger fight. I think it's referring to some smaller fight within the church about who knows what, maybe these issues that he mentions here in verses uh, six, or excuse me, 19 to 21 are, are on. Regardless, they can't keep doing what they're doing. They have to stop. 
If so, then this warning here in verse 15 is very easily applied to us. I mean, how do we treat one another when we disagree about the freedoms that we have in Christ? Now, that's practical, right? Because, quite frankly, I doubt there's anyone in this room that I agree with 100% on, on how you view your freedoms. You know, some of you are going to be to my right, and you're going to enjoy less freedoms or maybe in specific areas, and you'll have different reasons for why you do that. And some of you are going to be to my left, and you're going to have more freedoms or enjoy more freedoms, and you're going to have various reasons for why you do that. You know, and in my case, as I think about that, um, you know, how have I treated those people in the past? Well, truth be told, I, I've treated those groups in some not-so-godly ways in times gone by. To the, for the group to my right, the more conservative, I'll call them, group, there have been times where I've just outright mocked them and ridiculed them because I thought that their decisions were dumb or more often because I thought their reasons for their decisions were dumb. And so in my pride and arrogance, I'm going I'm to make sure they know that I think they're dumb. Or for the group on my left, there will be times where I have accused them and judged them and their motives, sometimes privately or to others, not often to their face. So I'm not proud of that. I'm not excusing that. But I'm just recognizing that this is a problem, right, that we have to think about. If we're going to live together as a church, and we're not all going to agree on every single point of how we live our life in the freedom that God has given us, then how are we going to do that and not end up just tearing ourselves apart like Paul describes here? Well, I think, I think verse 15 is a good starting point, at least. That regardless of how we differ with one another on the various points of freedom that we have in Christ, there's no place for this. None. You say, well, Stacey, if we don't, if we don't call each other out on that, won't, won't that basically almost encourage people to, to potentially sin? Uh, no, I don't think that's the point at all. I mean, did Paul not begin this section by saying to them, point blank, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh? You do get that there's a place for that within Christian community, right? That you, as a believer, have the right and responsibility to go to any other believer in this church or in any other church for that matter. And if you see something in their life that's causing you to be concerned about what they're doing and why they're doing it, you can talk to them. Did you know you're free to do that? You are. Happy birthday, Merry Christmas, whatever, okay? You're free. And I don't want you to go to them in those moments and accuse them. I'm not even saying confront them. I said talk to them. You can sit them down and say, hey, look, I, I've just noticed that in these scenarios you do this. Or in this context, I saw you do that. Can, and it just confused me because I have some different thoughts. Can you maybe help me? Like what were you thinking there? Why did you do that? What was your motivation? Do you, what, was the, what, what scripture? You know, like you, I don't know how to like word the conversation. It would depend on the context, but... You can do that. And if you are ever the recipient of that conversation, can I just say something specifically to you? You just found out who your true friend was. If someone has the courage to sit you down and say, hey, look, I've noticed this in your life, and I'd like to understand why you do it like you do, you just found out who really loves you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Every time, faithful. I love the illustration. Two guys come at you, both with knives. Both are going to cut you. One's a doctor, one's a, a robber. There's a big difference in those two guys, right? One's your friend, one's not. One's there to help you, one's there to hurt you. So when someone comes at you with a knife to help you, let them. 
Maybe you'll end up helping them. Maybe their conscience is too sensitive. Maybe you need to explain, and they're going to be like, I never thought of it that way. Or maybe, just maybe, I know this is shocking, you're wrong. Maybe. And you need to think about what they're concerned about and why they brought these things to you and examine your own heart and motivations and see, Lord, is this, is this what I should do? Is this why I should do it? No one's perfect. There's always room to change. So talk to them. Ask them. That's, that's the loving thing to do. There's a correct way to do this, and then there's an incorrect way to do this. And this is the incorrect way, to just bite and devour one another. And if you haven't been the recipient of that, then you probably haven't been a believer very long, or you're just very insulated and you don't have a lot of people in your life. Because it happens. People come at you and they bite. They're not trying to help you. They just don't like what you do. That's not, <laughs> that's not godly. They just want to destroy you, destroy your reputation. That happens too, hopefully not as much. But hey, look, the correct way to do this and an incorrect, a loving way and an unloving way, a right way to disagree and a wrong way to disagree. And the wrong way is what Paul describes here in verse 15. And the outcome of that, mark these words because this is the warning, the outcome of that is always destruction. You see a church that gets filled with that, I can guarantee you that church is on its way to destruction. You see a believer, a family of believers who are like that, I can almost guarantee you they're on their way to destruction. This is not what God wants, so may God keep us from that end. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we don't want to be like this, but it is so easy. It is so easy when we disagree with one another about freedoms to to make it like a personal thing and to attack each other like enemies. But we are not enemies. We're, we're friends. We're brothers. We are one in Jesus Christ. And so the response we see here, it should not be the, the believer's type of response, and yet we are so guilty of it so often. Forgive us. Forgive us for the private judgments and the mockings and the way we think we are so much better than everyone else and have figured out all of these questions that everyone's wrestling with and we're all trying to hopefully please you but we fail we're sinners and we need to remember that and then treat one another with the kind of love that we want shown to us i don't i don't want to be attacked why would i attack others and yet i do lord forgive me and so i pray that our church would be one that never ever uses our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but at the same time when the moments come when we disagree about those freedoms that we do it with love and joy and peace and meekness. Lord, all of those fruits of the Spirit we see coming up, may that be the thing that characterizes our church and our family here at Cornerstone, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.